Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Sarah Patterson, one of the hosts here on the channel, and today we'll be talking to Alexandra Cox about her new book, Trapped in a Vice, The Consequences of Confinement for Young People. Welcome to the show, Alexandra. Hi, nice to talk to you, Sarah. Can you tell us about yourself? Yes, I am currently teaching at University of Essex um, in England in the Department of Sociology. And before I got to Essex, I taught at SUNY New Paltz in the Department of Sociology. I worked actually as a sentencing mitigation specialist for a number of years before I went to get my PhD. Um, A sentencing mitigation specialist is someone who advocates for people charged with crimes by writing their life histories and advocating for alternatives to incarceration and lower sentences. So I I spent a few years doing that work before I went to get my PhD in England and then um, have been working, um, teaching, and um, I continue to do advocacy work in the juvenile justice and criminal justice system outside of my research and teaching work. Great. So can you tell us how this book came about for you? Sure. It, It really came about as a result of my work that I've been doing in the system. I went to go and get my PhD and I realized that so much of the time that I'd spent advocating for teenagers on the outside kind of prevented me from seeing what happened to them on the inside of the system. And while I was doing the research for my PhD, I realized that so little work had been done to kind of explore the contours of confinement for young people. There had been very little work done in general about um, research inside of prisons, and, and there was an emerging kind of group of scholars who were doing qualitative research inside of prisons, including some of my supervisors in graduate school. So I was encouraged to apply for access to, and I gained access to juvenile facilities in the state of New York to do my research. So I, I was encouraged and excited to be able to kind of explore the realm inside that I hadn't really been able to explore before. Great. So in the introduction, you say young people seem to struggle the most under the burdens of social inequality. And I felt like this was a really poignant way to say why your study matters, right? Is that these children and these youth are the ones who are going to suffer within these institutions and sort of the social structures. So I was hoping you could tell us more about that. Yes. And you're absolutely right. That I mean, why I was particularly interested in studying young people came in part from like a friend who's a scholar who has studied young people's well so aptly put it this is a group of young people who are over policed and underprotected they are young people who um, experience really huge burdens of system involvement and have really interacted with the state at so many levels not just the criminal justice system level but they also are a group of young people who haven't um, been protected by that state and Secondly, I was really interested in the kind of philosophical puzzle that young people present, which is that they go into a system which expects that they take responsibility for their actions. They go into a system which demands that they kind of 
show all of the ways that they can be acceptable citizens. And yet they aren't actually full citizens yet. They're the group of young people that I studied were all under the age of um, 18 when they entered the system. And for the most part, didn't have those kinds of citizenship rights, both legally, but also because they were so uh, marginalized and underprotected. So I was interested in kind of the puzzle that they represented, particularly in confinement. So I, I gained access to three juvenile facilities in the state of New York. And those facilities represented different categories of young people. In New York State, young people can be charged as adults as young as 13 years old. Um, and then I also gained access to facilities where young people were sent if they were adjudicated delinquent. And I, I, my interest was in studying some of the ways that those facilities um, demanded that young people change and the kinds of programs that they required of them. So in the introduction, you talk about poster children as sort of this narrative that forces us to ignore the systemic issues that these youth are dealing with. You know, and later in the book, you talk about personal responsibility. And I found um, this to be a really interesting sort of way to talk about um, some of these kids. So I was hoping you could sort of explain what being a poster child is and then how you saw it relating to your study. The way that I thought about this came from actually some of my work before I started doing my research. And I had been working in a public defender's office and I had a client who I talk about in the in the book who by all accounts was a success. She had been arrested as a teenager and charged with selling drugs and she was granted the opportunity to do an alternative to incarceration program and she went to college and she got a great job and on paper she was doing so well. And she had been invited to speak at a fundraiser for our organization. And yet what I knew about her was that she was a young person who struggled deeply with the pains and experiences of systemic neglect, of parental neglect. She had been in and out of psychiatric hospitals. She struggled um, with the demands of code switching between a kind of world of the street, but also um, an institutional world of finance where she was based. And what I began to see was that I think she represented for me also some of the demands of the system, which was that we we seek so many of us, and I say we because I include myself as an advocate in the system, we desire and demand that children fit into clean narratives of redemption and success. And those narratives um, are shaped largely by the people who create the system, not by the young people themselves, who actually have far more complex existences. And I think that that poster child, that's what I call it, the poster child ideal, often sets young people up um, to fail, in part because it demands that they behave in particular ways that are ways that the system demands, as opposed to uh, meeting the needs of the young people themselves. Yeah, another thing that really stuck out to me um, throughout the book is that you keep using this word worthiness. Are they worthy of um, the help that they're receiving. And so I wondered if you could talk more how you found that developing out of your data. Yes, yes. Um, it was, it really, it came up and in, in part because I was so struck by young people's um, ass own assessments of their own self-worth. I think that's where it began for me. So I so often met young people who describe themselves as bad. And yet when I asked them where that term came from, it almost invariably originated with the adults in the system that they'd come into contact with. So they, the young people would say to themselves, I'm a bad kid, for example. And I knew enough to sort of 
realized that that wasn't necessarily their own sense of themselves. And I also suppose that even though I'd been trained to study labeling theory and the, um, the you know, the ways that stigma and labeling operated, I also was skeptical that this, these were actual terms that young people themselves had fully internalized. I think they grappled with the idea of being bad, but, you know, their enactments of badness were, were complex. And I think that that idea of worth came out of that in the sense that I realized that there were certain kinds of young people who were deemed worthy of help and care and support. Those were perhaps the poster children that you maybe were linking this to. And there were certain young people who were deemed to be unworthy or bad. And, and, and young people themselves really kind of struggled in, in the areas of contradiction that existed in, you know, between being worthy or unworthy. And I think became very confused about how to enact worthiness in a system which actually had quite confusing and contradictory messages about what worth meant within that system. Great. Thank you. So in the beginning, in chapter one, you sort of set up the history of, of reformatories and um, you refer to these systems as treating these youth as other people's children. Um, and I think that that's a really important aspect of how these systems are set up. So I was hoping you could talk more about that. Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, I was I first began thinking about the history of the system actually from reading a book called The Child Savers, which was written by the sociologist Tony Platt back in 1969. And, and, and Tony Platt really, I think, first brought to my attention the idea that what I had been trained to understand, which is that the early juvenile justice system was a benevolent, good effort, an effort to really treat children differently than adults, was actually something that I needed to sort of begin to think a little bit more critically about. And, and what Tony brought up in his book was that, indeed, the system was created for as you mentioned, other people's children. The, the, um, in that case, the early system was for largely white immigrant children as a system that was largely originate, sort of oriented around social control and, and the kind of control through labor, through, um, through other kinds of mechanisms of children who are deemed to be a kind of threat to the social order. And I think that the child savers kind of pushed me to think more critically about the history of New York system. He, he, in the child savers talks a little bit about that system, but I began to do some research in the archives in New York and, and really see the ways that the system um, was developed in a way that, that was largely focused on a kind of paternalist effort at social control of children and has been somewhat consistently focused on that. I think the second component of it was that it was also largely, um, exclusionary at the beginning of, of black children who were either sent to adult institutions or um, relegated to really kind of quite a different system of social control. And as we've, you know, progressed into this era, now the institutions are indeed again for other people's children, but now overwhelmingly for black and Latino children and Native American children. So they're continues to be this kind of focus of these institutions on controlling children um, in a way, the, the children who um, the administrators of the system look very different from, for the most part. And, and I think what I was interested in in understanding the history is thinking about some of the ways that what we think of as new is actually quite old, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, and that ties to my next question, um, which is that you point out in the book this idea of community versus custody. Um, and you talk about how at first this community approach seems anti-paternalistic, but actually it's kind of, you know, rooted in these assumptions that the working class family is in need of intervention and sort of tying back to these um, racialized and gendered um, ideas that we have. And so I was hoping you could talk more about what you talk about in the book, which is like custody is for bad kids and welfare as policies are for the ones that are able to be saved. Yes, I think. I mean, just to pick up on one component of it, I guess it's, you know, I I had always assumed when I worked as an advocate that there was this language that, you know, community, quote, community is always better than custody or preferable to custody. And I, I always took that for granted as an overwhelmingly good thing. Kids, I thought, well, maybe kids, kids should not be in institutions where, you know, and then I began to look in the archives and I realized this kind of language has existed for a very long time, or this was kind of advocacy, you know, goal. And, and I began to interrogate more closely what, what the, some of the assumptions were underneath this about family, for example, and removal. And what I realized was that even in the argument around community, the assumptions that community is criminogenic, for example, always have, have always kind of largely been present. So even in the context of today where there've been a lot of closures of institutions and an advocacy around community, the assumption is always that treatment and interventions will take place in the community of the kind of criminogenic family, that the family is the source of crime, not the state, not the police, not the other kinds of institutions that might actually criminalize young people. And that if only we can kind of treat the family and the child and change the family and the child, we will eliminate crime. And I always found that so striking because I think that it it does, it never gets us to the place to kind of critically interrogate the role of um, the systems of law enforcement and and the uh, the legal systems that may also uh, begin to construct who is a criminal and who isn't. And then you're you're right to point out that also what does what welfare means in that context is also really interesting and important to think about. So whose welfare are we preserving? Another uh, word that I found really powerful that you use throughout the book is this idea of being ungovernable. Um, And so here um, in chapter two, you use Michael as an example. So he was sort of a class clown. He's late to class. um, And so he's seen as having an attitude problem. And he starts to even describe himself as bad. But really, um, as you pointed out, you know, it's really kind of a a message that he's internalized um, from other people. And so later in the chapter, he actually tells you, like, I gave up, you know, and his um, bad behavior is sort of an expression of his resignation. So I was hoping you could sort of elaborate more on that. Yeah, thanks. I, it, it is, it, yeah, and it's it's a complicated concept, isn't it? Because it's, it's, I think that what I was interested in was also what being governor, really what being governable means, because it's, you know, in the case of Michael, as you mentioned, kind of jokingly, but I think it's, it's really serious in a lot of ways, is that he, he was a kid, like many other kids, and, you know, class clown, kind of, slightly goofy, you know, I knew him well, and I knew that he, the ways that he'd been characterized in school uh, were, were not necessarily representative or reflective of what I knew about him. But I, I, what I did know enough was that he could and would be considered 
as a frustrating, to be a frustrating student in school. And in that context, as you, as you're kind of suggesting, there are these ways that that kind of behavior becomes unacceptable in environments where the standards are, you know, the, that the best child is the deferential child is the respectable child is the person who's quiet. And ironically, and this really emerged from my work with young people was that I represented so many of the teenagers who the teachers hated and found incredibly frustrating. And I'm sure as a teacher myself, I get frustrated by the students who don't meet my own demands. But I think I began to kind of critically interrogate what governable looks like. And I think it looks like deference. It looks like, you know, quiet. It looks like compliance. And and I think that it just it's important to think about what non-compliance looks like and then what the consequences are in particular for a young person like Michael who is living and inhabiting a world where his exposure to criminalization is far greater than mine is, for example. Great. That actually leads into my next question, which is sort of how you situated yourself as the researcher in relation to your subjects. So for instance, you know, in chapter two, you talk about Genevieve thinks that you're just another lady there to ask her more questions. Or in your methodology appendix, you um, give this example of a grandmother who thinks you're there basically to file paperwork on them. Um, You know, and so I was hoping you could talk more about that experience as a researcher. Yes. And I think a really wonderful mentor of mine always taught me that you must treat every action as information um, and that you have to be analytical about those actions. So I think the reason why I included the anecdote about the grandmother of my participant was that I felt that actually what was so revealing about turning up at her house and having her immediately show me around the house as if I was doing a home inspection, which is a fairly typical child welfare activity. So a social worker would come to a home and and make sure the house is safe enough for a child to come live in it. But what was so striking to me was that her her experience with the system had must have been so regular and routine that she immediately assumed that I was playing this part and and that rather, you know, the rather than being a researcher, I was an inspector of sorts. And I thought, gosh, you know, one of the things that young people experienced so much was that the system was sort of all over. And that as a white woman, I in many ways represented that system. And and the kind and I think most importantly, the idea that help is not always help. Help can also be hurtful. Um, help can be repressive. It can be paternalistic. And I tried to sort of think about that as a researcher and be reflexive about that. Not, I mean, of course, it's important to be reflexive about your identity in so many ways. But I, I also tried to think about why my role was significant, not only methodologically for the sort of racial differences in general, but also for what I represented in the context of the research itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, great. So um, this leads me to another question about chapter two, which is about um, Slam. And he is... Uh, sent to a juvenile facility, not because he actually reoffended, but because he wasn't participating in school. And so I was hoping you could talk more about sort of what we see as deviant among this population of youth. Yes. Well, it's a pretty common practice just as context um, for judges to monitor school attendance in court. So when I worked in 
the system, we would uh, judges would let our clients out during the so to, so to be able to have an opportunity to kind of prove themselves. And then at every court date, the the our clients would turn up, and then they the judges would evaluate their school attendance. And if they didn't go to school, the threat of jail was always there. And I so it's relatively common, and I'm sure it's common in jurisdictions all around the country. Yeah, I think that I mean I think that there's some irony in this in the sense that uh, this this idea that again noncompliance is viewed in a way as so rather than understanding let's say some of the reasons why a young person may not be going to school so are there are there safety questions are they uh, are they worried about going to school because there's someone who poses a safety threat to them. Are they not going to school because they have a learning disability? Are they not going to school or struggling with school because they feel ashamed about um, certain aspects of themselves? I, I once had a client who, it turned out, he arrived in a juvenile facility. He was in the eighth grade, and he was reading at a very low level. It turned out he'd never had an eye or vision test done, and he couldn't he couldn't see um, what he was reading. And so I think when we assume that going to school is simply a kind of an activity that reveals someone's delinquency as opposed to understanding the context of those actions. I think that that begins to send messages again to teenagers that they're only ever bad if they um, don't comply in these particular ways that the state expects them to. And they begin to see the state, which includes the education system, as only an ever repressive and punitive so another uh, thing that you bring up in chapter two that I want to talk about is one of your participants named Belle. And you note that often the girls are considered more difficult than boys. And so I was hoping you could sort of talk more about like the gender definitions of deviance. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's such an interesting phenomenon. I mean, and even now that I live in England and have lived in England for a while, you hear this idea of difficult girls in England and everywhere, really. Um, so it wasn't surprising to me that I arrived at juvenile facility and the director of the facility started out by telling me how difficult girls are. Yeah. I mean, I think that the example of Belle that you talk about, what I found so interesting was that she, so many of her own forms of resistance and her frustrations and her anger and her fears were treated as intransigent, difficult, and actually ultimately criminalizable because she was she was actually arrested during the time that I was doing my research and sent to, because she was 16 at the time she was arrested, she was sent to an adult jail. Uh, 16 is the age of criminal responsibility in New York. But she, in many ways, was someone who, um, you know, her own struggles to comply with the institution, I felt were quite reflective of some broader struggles that she'd had in her life around kind of control and agency and her, her own early childhood. And I think when what I began to see was a response to her, which was not reflective, didn't reflect or acknowledge that history, she invariably became more angry um, and enraged. And I think you're right to point out, like I mean, the, the very, the gendered nature of this is that, she then the framing of it is, is you know she be, she became kind of the most difficult girl in the institution even though actually in many respects she was i 
think in some ways calling attention to the craziness of the institution the most. I mean, you can sort of, it depends on how you frame it or how you understand it. And that is gendered in the sense that there's a sense that girls should be more docile or more caring or more gentle, that they, they, you know, there, there are certain expectations about the questions that they ask and not are not allowed to ask. Great. Thank you. So that, that ties really well to my next question from chapter three, which is um, you have this quote at the beginning of the chapter from a parent that I thought was really powerful. And the parent said, it's easy to get in trouble, but it's hard to get out. And so um, I was hoping you could talk more about that and then also how you attended a parole meeting with Marcus and his dad and sort of, you know, what that experience was like and what it showed you. Yes. So I went with, so Marcus had been kind of in and out of custody. He, he'd spent some time in a residential facility as a teenager. His father had spent time in prison. His brother was also in and out of the justice system. So just as a little context about his family, I, he came home and uh, in New York state, even though he had been arrested when he was 14, he was charged as an adult. And so was thus on adult parole. Uh, and he had, had been having some difficulty in his parole officer. He'd been getting into trouble with his parole officer and his officer wanted him to come in and do a, a urine test. So I attended this, you know, I went to this adult parole office. It was as one might expect most adult parole offices look like with Marcus and his dad. And, um, we, we went into the meeting. There were actually, there was actually another person who just finished another quote parolee in the meeting. That's what they're referred to. And his officer kind of handed him a urine test to take. And I think that what I talk about in that chapter was that Marcus basically completely panicked when he realized he had a positive test. The, the test was positive for marijuana and he was very concerned that he would violate his parole and thus be sent to Rikers Island because he was an adult at this point. And he panicked and he went on the run and that actually made the situation worse for him because it, it meant that he would almost invariably be sent to Rikers Island. And I think that part of the experience I, I suppose that part of what it taught me was that there are these ways that, you know, what can begin, as you suggested at the beginning of the chapter, as a very kind of minor encounter. I mean, really a simple positive drug test for marijuana, which is incredibly minor in the big scheme of things, can actually really escalate and in many ways shaped by adolescence, by fear, by impulse, the impulse related issues related to adolescence, but also by a system which, you know, it doesn't you know, it's an adult parole officer who essentially only ever understands him as a violator, not as someone who uh, makes a, a mistake consistent with adolescence. And just incidentally, and I'll say this because another teenager in the chapter deals with marijuana related issues, a great number of the young people that I worked with smoked marijuana. And I think it's, I think we sometimes can't, we have to be sensitive also to the ways that in the lack of absence to anti-anxiety medication, which other teenagers, perhaps more privileged teenagers have access to, marijuana becomes a way of coping with anxiety for a lot of teenagers. And I think while that's not to you know diminish the illegality of marijuana in this context and the violation of parole, it's just to suggest that, again, these kinds of actions are not taken in context. 
Great. That actually leads perfectly into my next question, which is that, you know, in chapter three, you point out that maturation is actually taking place within an institutional setting of the juvenile justice system. And I think, you know, from a developmental uh, perspective, I mean, that's huge. Um, I mean, I've said it before and I'll say it again, that being a teenager is hard. Um, but here they're, you know, maturing in the system and it sort of relates to what you were saying, um, about marijuana. And so I was hoping you could sort of talk more about this. Yes, I was really, I think I had a kind of alleluia moment actually when I was in the middle of doing my research, I thought, oh my gosh, these are partly related to the indeterminacy of these sentences. So, I mean, the, a lot of the young people I followed had cases that lasted for many years and what I what I was thinking about was, gosh, you know, in the midst of all of this, they're also growing and changing really rapidly and dealing with all of the attendant problems and dilemmas of adolescence that we all dealt with. So, you know, frustrations and burdens of growing up and insecurities and anxieties and confidence and romance and, you know, friendship. And yet for the young people who were sent to prison or to institutions, they're having to cope with those kinds of pains of growth in a setting where they don't have access to the institutions and relationships and mechanisms that facilitate that growth. So whereas on the outside, a teenager who is going through the difficulty of adolescence has access to um, really resources that kind of either, you know, that, that allow them to kind of test that growth. Whereas this, it just occurred to me, wow, you know, these are, these are kids who are not only growing up, but they're also in these contexts, which frustrate that growth, which, you know, so teenagers always already experience boredom, for example, that's a common, you know, experience of teenage life, but they're in institutions where boredom is pervasive. Uh, they already experience the anxiety of indeterminacy. When is something going to happen? How that is enhanced in these kinds of settings, um, you know, where they don't know when or if they're ever going to be released from the burden of court, for example. Great. Thank you. Um, so in chapter four, you talk about what you refer to as the responsibility trap. And it's uh, this idea that these reward systems that are set up within the institution for the youth don't actually translate to what the real world is like. Um, so I was hoping you could talk more about that. Yeah. Um, I think that I, I guess I could start by saying, you know, there were some questions that I asked toward the end of the book, but they sort of are relevant here, which is that I think I, I began to try to think, okay, what are the questions that, and, and, and the kinds of forms of growth that a lot of these teenagers are thinking about? So one of the things they're thinking about is how can I stay free from incarceration? And I just want to be clear here. It's not about how can I avoid prison? How can I, you know, stay out of prison. It's how can I stay free of incarceration? How can I stay free of police custody? How can the police, how can I avoid police contact? Again, not about evading law enforcement or getting away with things, but how can I, how can I lift these burdens? How can I go to college? Because frankly, a lot of the young people that I talked to really wanted to go to college. How can I have a career? And I say career more than job because you know, like many teenagers, a lot of these teenagers had aspirations for a career. Um, and then also, how can you find love or and friendship? How can you find relationships, support, certainty? And I think that the way that the system 
operates and the programs operate inside. And they they talk about responsibility because they they try to promote a sense of self-mastery and responsibility and the management of program expectations. I really try to argue that these programs don't do anything to help young people address these very pertinent questions in their lives, which relate to growing up, getting out and staying out of custody, ultimately. Great. Yeah. So I was hoping you could talk more about how you saw the staff um, sort of understanding uh, the interventions that they were administering, you know, and just their place in the institution. Sure. Yes, the staff were so such an important part of my work because staff are not this, you know, they're not this sort of monolith. You know, some staff do buy into the kinds of ideas of the system. But for the most part, staff actually really recognize that much of what they're doing is also is sort of facilitating the smooth running of daily life in the facility. So asking young people to comply with the demands helps their, make their lives easier because if a young person holds their hand behind their backs and says, yes, sir, then they're sort of helping the facility run, operate smoothly. But a lot of staff, I think, began to recognize that, you know, they were sending young people out into a world totally unequipped and unprepared to face that world. And, and staff members themselves would do things like fill in a fast uh, financial aid form for young people or, you know, make an effort to try to identify housing for them even, which they were not really supposed to be doing. But I think that staff members began to realize in some ways that what was happening was was not good for them. And, and in a way, a number of staff members as a result compensated by sort of trying to level the aspirations of young people, trying to say, look, you say you want to be a veterinarian. Maybe it's, you know, to Sam, they said, maybe, to Slam, actually, sorry, they said, you know, maybe you should just work in a pet shop, try to get put in a job application at a pet shop. And so they, they would try to sort of say to them, look, I think recognizing that the system really couldn't do very much for them, but they would try to sort of throw something at young people to, to get them to think about that was ultimately also not even particularly helpful in that instance, because even to get into a pet shop, it would be, there were so many steps that the system was unable to take to help Slam get there. Great. Thank you. So in chapter five, um, you start the chapter off um, where you're talking about, you know, these youth are being held responsible for their actions, right? Um, but you start off um, giving the example of Olivia and her guardian, Damien. Um, and I, th- I thought this example was just extremely powerful because here, you know, Olivia has a guardian um, and he actually pimps her out. And so it's so interesting that it's like she's being held responsible for her actions, but when um, – you know, she was young, she was actually taken advantage of. And so just like seeing um, these youth in the whole context of their early lives, um, of the institutionalized nature of of their um, incarceration. Yes. It's, you know, there's a really wonderful piece of work by a sociologist, Jennifer Silva, which where she writes about this concept of, of what she calls willful self-change. And she did research with undergraduates, working class undergraduates in colleges and looked at some of the ways that they were sort of encouraged to embrace this idea of willful self-change, even in the context of a very uncertain economy and, you know, grappling with student loans. And what what I was, I think I was struck by and inspired in her work was that, you know, in a similar way, the young people in these facilities were induced to, to sort of embrace the idea of 
willful self change of saying, you know, I come here alone, I leave here alone. I'm, you know, my, it was what I call a sort of fetishization of the will, you know, this idea that if only you manage and master your, your sense of the will, you will be fine. And I think you're absolutely right to point out that in the context of also in particular, young people have had extraordinarily um, adverse life, con- you know, consequences early on in their life and throughout their early childhood, but also like very adverse relationships with the state and, and kind of negative and violent interactions with the state mm-hmm. to suggest that it's simply a sort of pick yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, you come here alone, you stay here alone. Actually, in, in many ways, is this very reckless and irresponsible way of treating people who themselves bear very little, you know, have bear very little responsibility for their existence, which gets back to the first point you made, which was why I was interested in teenagers in particular, is that there are these demands on them in this context to, to kind of take responsibility for issues, which I think outside of the system, most would recognize they haven't borne responsibility for. Um, And then I think finally, you know, just recognizing that also these forms of responsibility that they're asked to embrace are not consonant with even, this is again, their teen, I mean, Olivia was going to leave when she was not really, she was probably, I think, going to be about 17 when she left, where she doesn't even have the capacity legally to meet so many of her own needs. Um, so it's, again, goes back to that notion of sort of underprotected, um, in what ways does this also, this, this responsibilizing language also embed that idea of being underprotected? Great. Thank you. So one of the things that you point out throughout the book is that like these youth are incredibly aware of their surroundings and sort of, um, the nature of their institutionalization, um, and so, for example, you talk about this one um, kid named News, um, and he talks about who he deems Mr. Robot, right? Is this other kid who has a high level of submission um, to authority and th- how this is sort of a fake it till you make it approach. Um, so I was just hoping you could talk more about how, you know, they're, they are super aware of uh, their surroundings. Yes, that's what was so striking. I mean, you know, people are very smart about this. They know what is going on in, in far more many ways than we anticipate. And so, yes, the example you provide about news, you know, news, news saw that there was another kid in the facility who was getting more privileges than, uh, and, and sort of was being not even, it wasn't even being treated better, but he had sort of a little bit more autonomy and he decided to sort of copy what this young person was doing. He called him a Mr. Robot, which I thought was very poignant. And, he, you know, I think, so, you know, young people recognize that performance was in many ways essential for relieving some of these pains of imprisonment and largely the pains of autonomy in imprisonment. And so when they performed the program, they were able to get a few more little, you know, extra privileges. They, they got a little bit more time and space for themselves. And so they recognized what needed to be done. Um, and, and we're pretty savvy about it for the most part. I mean, this wasn't every young person. There were some who, who didn't, but I think, you know, the ones who did definitely saw, they kind of saw what it would take. It wasn't, it wasn't rocket science. (laughs) 
Great. Thank you. So here, I was hoping you could sort of wrap up for us and give us some takeaways. Um, in your conclusion, you say a lot of people ask you, well, what would you do, right? Um, and so you say that that's perhaps the wrong question to be asking. Um, and so I was hoping you could give us some takeaways here. There are a couple of kind of core takeaways. One is, and I ask this in the book, I ask, what if we began to kind of reimagine who the child is at the center of these interventions and, and imagine that the child who's at the center of these interventions is extraordinary as opposed to bad. So, and I, by this, I mean, some people have talked about, for example, strengths based youth justice or positive youth justice. I suppose I don't exactly mean or point to those kinds of approaches, although I think that they're fine. I think that what I want us to think about are also that, it stemmed from that very last point about news, which is that young people, although they lack the capacities of, you know, that come along with full citizenship, they are extraordinary in their own ways. And teenagers themselves have the ability to negotiate and understand um, quite complicated uh, systemic dynamics. And, and and I think, you know, when we assume, when the interventions themselves are structured around this idea that, that the child is bad and needs to be fixed. Everything sort of begins to take shape around that idea. So that's what the facilities look like. So I think that was the first kind of question that I wanted to ask. And then I think I also want us to, you know, as I think, so for their takeaways for reformers and for sociologists, I mean, I think for reformers, I, I, I would hope that we would begin to think about the ways that reforms operate that don't simply just reproduce or, try to improve upon the existing system, but which try to envision a system or, you know, think about a world in which we don't rely upon um, sort of these forms of control to solve what we perceive to be our social problems and, and try to begin to think about a system that is rooted around needs rather than the system itself. I think in terms of the sort of sociological takeaways, I want us to think about how this case study of thinking about young people who are criminalized can also begin to help us ask more enduring questions about young people's experiences in these systems more broadly and how they represent a really unique case study for thinking about um, how we really treat um, the most marginalized of marginalized. So marginalized by age, by race, by gender, by legal status, you know, what we do for that group of young people, which we believe in this present day is right and, and oriented around reform and rehabilitation. I want us to sort of begin to ask critically why, even though, we aren't doing the abusive and horrific things we were doing in the past, why these programs of responsabilization are in and of themselves worth interrogation. Great. Thank you. So today we've been talking with Alexandra Cox about her book, Trapped in a Vice, The Consequences of Confinement for Young People. So what are you working on now, Alexandra? I'm working on a research study about the role of mercy in the justice system. So I'm collaborating with my friend Dwayne Betts, who um, is a scholar at Yale Law School, and he himself spent nine years in prison as a teenager. And we're interviewing people who've been incarcerated and people who are incarcerated about 
their relationships to the concept of mercy. So it's a quite a different project, but it's one that relates to this longer term interest in how we approach people who we believe to be bad and unredeemable. Sounds really interesting. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much, Sarah, for your great questions. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. You've been listening to New Books in Sociology. My name is Sarah Patterson, and I hope you'll check us out online or on any podcasting app. Take care.